so, you know, that's the book. I mean, it talks about how this IMF World Bank led international monetary system when it comes to like the wealthy countries and their relationship to poor nations, how it's not just bureaucratic and wasteful and corrupt. Mm -hmm. That's the typical criticism of these mm -hmm. things. No, no, it's much deeper than that. Yeah. It's actually that they are neocolonial tools to to harvest resources and labor from other places and, 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 and then bring them in to subsidize our economies. And, and we would be so much worse off if we didn't have this flow. Um, just to be brutally honest, mm -hmm. like, like we, we are, we are subsidizing our societies at the expense of others. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Alex Gladstein, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Happy to be here. Glad to have you again. We are sitting here on the eve of Bitcoin 2023 in beautiful Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot going on this week. Conference starts tomorrow, so the, the chaos has begun. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool that we can have this big festival dedicated to creating open source money beyond the control of governments. It almost feels like it should be illegal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange, right? When um, it should be illegal, yet it's something that's overthrowing this crime against humanity that is central banking. and that. Oh, it's morally just. I just yeah. think the authorities would be a little more worried about it, but they don't really get it. Yeah, I know. It's just a strange <laughs> testament to the world we're in, where things that are morally justified are 
should be illegal, right? Oh, pri- privacy and freedom exactly. are, are, are dangerous. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Um, just by way of quick intro, you have a new book. Yes. Last, so last time we talked, we were covering some of your written work. Yes. You were about to convert some of that into a book. The mm-hmm. book is titled Hidden Repression. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we could just jump in there. Like the thesis of the book, I think you said you described the IMF as a mechanism for benefiting the West. What does that yeah, look like? Yeah, that's the core thesis, is that the international monetary system is is often described as perhaps um, wasteful or bureaucratic or corrupt, um, even by libertarian scholars i mean you know usually it's like leftist or marxist critiques of things like the imf and the world bank dollar hegemony you know that com- tends to come from the left but even the libertarians will say that it's not ideal that it has problems my thesis and it's it's not entirely novel of course but it's it's a little different i think than than what the libertarians might say uh, is not just that it's um harmful for the poor countries it's that it's actually benefiting the West. Like the the Bretton Woods pillars that were set up in 44, which include the IMF and the World Bank and the whole world trade system. My my argument is is that they aren't just uh, damaging poor countries. They, they, they are actually uh, siphoning their resources to the West. And mm-hmm. the, they are mechanisms for subsidizing our way of life here. Like such an enormous amount of the world's, the planet's resources uh, when it comes to anything from uh, energy, fossil fuels, gold, rare earths, timber, um, you know, such a massive percentage of that is in what we call the global south or the Mm -hmm. developing world. And something like 6.7 billion people are there too. So so most of the world's labor and most of the world's resources are there. Um, But we leverage them for our benefit. So in the West, which is about a billion people, half of our resources come from the global South and a third of our labor, roughly. Um, So what you need to realize is what would happen if all of a sudden we woke up tomorrow and we had half the resources and and we were missing the cheap end of our one third of our labor spectrum. Mm. We'd have massive fucking inflation. That's what would happen because things would be really expensive because we'd have shortages of very important minerals and energy sources, right? We would also not have access to outsourced, essentially, like, not slave labor, but, like, very exploited labor rates. Right. We'd have to be using Americans for those things, and their wages are much higher. So you'd have massive inflation. So this is a really nice way to think about it because it helps you understand that we use globalization. We we use our connections with the rest of the world um, to prop up and subsidize our system so that things stay cheaper than they would otherwise normally be. And you can think of like these like labor and resource as like external inputs to our system. And if those get cut off, we have crises. Like throughout history, we've always had crises when, when these inputs get severed. Yeah. So for example... Uh, Great Depression, there are a lot of reasons for why it happened, but one of them that's not that discussed is is that the British Empire was crumbling at the time, and it was losing a lot of its its inputs that it had been grown accustomed to. The crown jewel of the Western financial system was very much um, made possible by the looting of India, 
mm. um, one of the world's most resource-rich places. Uh, that that is a large part of why the British Empire got so vast and powerful because it looted the resources and labor of India, and that started to fall apart, and that that caused a big issue in the West. Right, the next one would be the seventies when we had a big inflationary crisis. That had a lot to do with the end of colonialism in terms of resource control. We used to control fossil fuels with the Seven Sisters. Western corporations used to control oil. And then that fell away and OPEC became independent and all these countries in the, in the Middle East and the Global South like asserted to control over oil, right? Over fossil fuels, hydrocarbons. Well, what happened? Well, they decided to raise the price because we no longer could exploit it at a lower than market rate. And we had a crazy inflation for a whole decade. So what you're seeing now... And people call it de-dollarization or deglobalization or whatever. But what, what's, what you're starting to see is like a fracturing of, of the neoliberal dollar hegemonic system, right? And it's, it's not in an advanced stage. It's just starting to happen. But you can start to see it obviously fraying. And what's going to happen is massive inflation in the West as a result of this, just like it's been before. Every time we lose control over the periphery of the world, we have a crisis at home. And the, the answer is always sort of money printing and, and devaluation of currency. So I think that's what's going to start to happen this decade. So the work I'm doing is exploring, you know, the control that we had over these places and how that might be starting to break down and then how people can get out through Bitcoin. It's great. Yeah, it's really, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. It rhymes, yeah. Like we've seen this happen time and time again. Mm-hmm. And it it's not uh, a fun intellectual pill to swallow. <laughs> it's grim, dude. Humans keep basically oppressing other humans, extracting resources. From the story another. from the beginning of history. And we keep telling ourselves in the present moment that somehow we've, we've moved past that. No, the powerful that, still exploit the weak. But the powerful still It's like a biblical. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the structure of the world is, is uh, it, it hides the repression. I mean, yes. that's why I titled my book the way it did. And I have a... Um, a good example of this that we can get into that I've kind of been building on since writing the book. And I think it's a, a good example of the thesis. And that's the uh, a country now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or what used to be called Zaire. And it's the largest country by surface area in Africa, one of the largest countries in the world, and probably one of the most resource rich. If we talk about rare earths, um, uranium, uranium, uh, we talk about fossil fuels. We talk about hydropower, uh, rainforests. Um, we talk about um, timber, uh, all kinds of incredibly lucrative uh, resources. Uh, that that's where that's what you find in Zaire. I mean, it, it 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 in many ways when you look at the Black Panther comic series, it was inspired in part by. Mm. Like essentially Wakanda, right? Yeah. The idea of Wakanda was like, well, what if what if colonialism didn't happen, right? What what if these nations were able to leverage their own resources and become super technological superpowers? I mean, seriously, what's inside the Earth's crust at that part of the world is so resource rich and powerful. But it didn't happen. And um, there's a lot of things that 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 we, that can explain that. But in the modern age, post colonialism one of the biggest things that explains that is the IMF and the World Bank and how they controlled this territory in collaboration with the dictator. So in the 60s, you had a guy named General Joseph Mobutu. 
he came to power and um, he said he would live on a soldier's salary. That's what he promised the people. Hmm. They always do, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> promised to be modest ruler and all these things. Uh, the thing is, he ended up becoming like a Cold War ally of the United States. There was there was a big proxy war in Angola that we fought, essentially, against the Soviets, where we were supporting Mobutu and his forces, and the Soviets were supporting leftist guerrillas. And it, ended up, it was like Africa's Vietnam is what people call it. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, you had all kinds of troops there from Cuba, the Soviet Union. Like, it, it was just a horrible, bloody civil war. And... Um, we wanted to back Mobutu, and he was one of our allies in the region. And uh, we we didn't necessarily care about the massive human rights violations that he perpetrated against his own people, right? Um, in fact, uh, the the DRC did have a democratically elect Zaire. I mean, the, the the country had a democratically elected leader that was actually assassinated, um, and and the CIA was involved. Um, Patrice Lumbamba, uh, you, you can look this up. Mm. It's, it's pretty insane. But um, he wanted to assert control, national control over the resources of that country. He wanted to be sovereign and free, mm-hmm. and that was not allowed. So he was literally killed mm-hmm. and then replaced with this like military thug who became like our, our ally in the region. So if you want to think about what the IMF does or like, structural adjustment it's it's basically this idea of like us lending money to somebody to prop them up uh, in exchange for conditionality mm-hmm. so mobutu normally may have been overthrown like i don't think he would have lasted 30 plus years or whatever if it weren't for western support quite obviously but what we would do is we would go in and we'd prop up these regimes with infusions of large amounts of capital in exchange for conditionality so what we would get out of supporting him were three things. We would get interest payments, we would get cheap resources and labor, and we would get control. So this is like a perfect blueprint with Zaire. So um, at the time, uh, these were high interest rate loans, so we had a flow coming back to us. Even today, the IMF and the World Bank, they make a lot of money off this flow. Uh, Creditor nations deposit funds there, they earn some interest, and then we charge a much higher rate of interest on poor countries. So you have generally like, you, you have billions of dollars of, of of income coming in as a stream. That's like one thing. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand these aren't charitable institutions, that they do make money, they're, they're banks. <laughs> like they're, mm-hmm. they're large financial banks. They're not not in any way altruistic or charitable. Um, second thing, of course, are the resources and labor. I mean, I, the laundry list again of, of, of incredible resources available in the DRC. I mean, tantalum, uh, cobalt, uh, uran- I mean, everything that powers our smartphones, uh, like semiconductors, so much of that stuff comes from places like like DRC and in DRC in particular. And then and then there's control. And what's really interesting is, is um, and, and I'm gonna give a talk on Friday here where I'll show this like uh, screenshot of this, it's insane. It's, it's a New York Times article from I think 78 and it basically, it, it, it explains that, like, in, 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 as a condition for the loan, the I, Zaire was gave up control over their economy to the IMF. Hmm. Like, this was not a conspiracy. It was just, like, an, a known thing. Right. Meaning the government of Zaire had to place IMF officials in its government, in the treasury, hmm. in, in control of the economy. Hmm. And we would shape the economy 
usually to do two things in the tropics. We would, uh, we would focus on extractive industries. So like, let's get this stuff out of the ground as fast as possible without any benefits accruing to the local population. In fact, we'd often like ruin the environment around them and, you know, make their life miserable. And number two, agriculture stuff. So we would like force them to do this like monocrop, like kind of industrial scale agriculture that that, uh, usually of things that they couldn't eat, Mm -hmm. that they would export to us for our consumption. Palm oil, rubber, tea, coffee, et cetera, right? Um, so we would like engineer their society to do this and to be more dependent. And in order to do so, this is an export led model. You want the exports to be cheap, right? So that means you need the currency to be weak. So we would devalue the currency again and again and again and again. Mm. And you basically want to like shrink the economy. Like you don't want the government to be like providing any subsidies to its people mm-hmm. or like healthcare, education. No, no, no. That's only for rich countries. Mm-hmm. This is like, we want it to be trim trim and neat now of course the dictator takes his cut but beyond that there's like nothing for the people left over there's like nothing on the bone left so you you take a productive economy and you and you basically like shrink it down you cut expenses basically Mm -hmm. so that you can have more profits that's like that that's what the imf does to countries and the incredible thing is looking at the currency of zaire it was called the zaire one zaire was worth a dollar in the early 70s when the IMF started to fund Zaire in 72 it's worth one dollar by 1995 uh, after the IMF had given billions of dollars to Mobutu and Mobutu was finally overthrown one Zaire was worth one billionth of a dollar wow one billionth of a dollar staggering so you can think of that like the productive capacity of the nation squeezed out over time Mm -hmm. And it even got it was it's interesting in the in the in the late seventies it was as one Zaire was worth even more than a dollar because they actually pegged it to what was called the SDR which mm-hmm. was the IMF's currency. So you went from like a currency one of these units which was worth more than a dollar in purchasing power to being worth one billionth of a dollar. I mean basically being worthless. Mm-hmm. And and the repeated devaluations were very tied to the IMF policy. And there's so many interesting things that that we need to learn about from poor countries that are going to happen to us. We think we're better. We think we're so arrogant. This, this could never happen here. I remember arguing with all these people about uh, inflation even, just like not even hyperinflation, but like high inflation, like we like we saw last year in mm-hmm. the United States, almost 10%. Official CPI, almost 10%. Britain's official CPI is 10%. Germany's 10%. Like I was assured two years ago that that was impossible in, in advanced countries. <laughs> That's only something you'll find in a, a war country or in a conflict zone. Mm-hmm. People are so arrogant. Um, so there are things that happen <laughs> in these in countries like Sayer, you know, now the DRC that that we can learn from. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, with a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection. No GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. 
Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. So there's a couple interesting like economic laws, theories, observations. Um, two of them, uh, uh, I think one of them is, I think it's called Tarsia's law or something like that. Um, but the point is... Uh, there, there's two interesting things that they observed. One is that when you have a country that has a currency that's devaluing really rapidly, there's actually like um, a, a, a really hard time for the government to build up its tax base through, through taxation because the currency is devaluing. So it's it's like the taxes aren't coming in fast enough hmm. uh, to pay to, to, to cover the fact to cover the inflation. This was happening in Zaire. Like the government was trying to increase taxes. And they were increasing taxes, of course. That's what the IMF always does, raises taxes on poor people. To the point where, uh, I thought this was insane. Um, you know, this is a country of very, very poor individuals. Um, but 60% of, of the country was in the highest tax bracket. Wow. Uh, and you had all these people making like less than $2,000 a year, paying 60% of their income to the government. So, I mean, you can think about the incentives that causes, right? But the government was like struggling to, to collect tax revenue. But the medium that they were accepting it in was devaluing so quickly that they weren't able to build up their tax base. This contributes to hyperinflation. Right. So that's one interesting observation that you would see, I think, in many countries over the coming decade. They're going to have trouble building up their national income through taxation, which is the traditional tool they use. Right. I mean, you can either tax or you can borrow. Those are your options. Or print. Or you can print. Um, which is just so that's interesting too because it actually causes they can't shore up tax base fast enough so they actually print more yeah they which that's, drives that's the inflation right further. so right so because they can't tax and borrow effectively mm -hmm. they end up just printing and that's yeah. what caused the hyperinflation wow but but what's interesting there's, there's another observation 
there's actually like some other, I forget what it's called, but like they would literally come in and like dump large pallets of cash into the local economic centers. And and then you would see just like an immediate devaluation in the exchange rate. This is like perceptible. Now it'll, that was the paper money. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the future when everything's mm-hmm. digital. Like this will just be like, but anyway, the, the, these things are going to happen in our countries too. We're, we're, we're like so arrogant. Like yeah. oh, that could never happen in our, they're going to happen in our countries. So it'd be, it's worth studying things like Zaire to see what happens. It's like that book, When Money Dies, right? Yeah. And of course, everybody's like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, I mean, Germany was a pretty rich democracy when that happened. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that could never happen here? That seems pretty arrogant to me. Why don't we learn from it and then maybe try to prevent that from happening? How about that? Instead of ignoring it. How could it be anything but a canary in the coal mine? Because (laughs) fiat currencies always trend along this path. So to think that we're the exception, I think it is, it's very It's the height much, of imperial arrogance, basically. Yes. I mean, look at, look at Britain, uh, you know, it, 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 it is a shell of its former self. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen to the United States. I mean, the U.S. has fabulous natural resources, good demography, birth rate compared to other, mm-hmm. compared to like, I don't mean good compared to like Nigeria, but I right. mean good compared to Japan and Russia and China. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Europe. Like we have a favorable demography. We have oceans that protect us. We have enormous natural resources. We have energy sovereignty. I don't think we're going anywhere as, as you know what I mean? As like yeah. a preeminent global power. I just think our fiat currency is not, invul- it's not invincible. Like it, it will collapse. Yeah. Like it's just a matter of time. And, yeah. and, and we will get these same things happening with our fiat currency. Now, maybe we can avoid that if we're smart. Or if markets dictate, like I, you know, poor countries never had that optionality. Like they, they just were in this dollar system. We're like Zaire, as it was going through this period of time where the dictator was stealing money and complying with IMF demands. I mean, one of the main things they had to do every month or every year when they were to pay their national bills was to pay to pay interest on debt, and they can only do that in dollars. Mm-hmm. Like they can't print. Zaire's to pay back debt to, to, to the IMF. Like they, that's not really. So every year that burden's getting more severe. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of these countries, what they end up doing is they, they, they collateral, they do like a, like collateralized loan. Like they, they'll give the IMF Zaire's in exchange for dollars at a particular interest rate. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they, sometimes it's like a loan from the IMF. Other times it's a, it's like a, it's almost like a, um, it's almost like a repo. It's like, it's like a, like swap. a swap. Yeah. And they try to, they'll, they'll swap pesos and they'll get dollars and they'll, then they'll promise to buy back the pesos later, right? <laughs> With dollars. So the IMF is always trying to like say that it has a certain amount of value, but the, the composition may change. But like yeah. the mark to market is supposed to stay pretty similar, uh-huh. but it is interesting. Um, but look, they make up for the devaluation of the currency through the crazy fees and the interest that they charge. Um, but anyways, here's a good example of structural adjustment. I mean, the by the time Mobutu left, I mean, again, this guy's like a perfect client of the IMF. The economy, the real economy had contracted by 40%. So even though the the population had essentially doubled, the economic output of this nation had been cut by 40%. Wow. That's structural adjustment. That's a diseconomy. And that that's an extreme example, but it's a very large country. And, yeah. and, and, it, and this sort of thing happens all around the world. I mean, it's even happening in Europe. Like one of the big things that the IMF started to do about 15 years ago was start to start to focus on Europe, poor countries in Europe, so poor, poorer countries. So Greece, for example. And, what do you, and what's crazy about Greece is ever since 08, it's gotten all this IMF money. Real wages are way down in Greece from 08, way down. 
Like, so again, you get squeezed. The average person gets mm-hmm. squeezed. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see all across the world. Yeah, it's so... Why, we've mentioned this in the last episode, but I think yeah. it's worth reiterating mm-hmm. that this exchange that is basically, I guess it's not being imposed upon these countries. They're accepting it, but they're kind oh, of- Oh, it takes two to tango. Yeah, yeah but it it's usually an undemocratic ruler who borrows. Exactly. I mean, they don't have the consent so of the people. that's point number one. Yeah. There's not consent of the people. There's one authoritarian or totally, semi-authoritarian. Usually. And then the exchange that's occurring from the IMF- this is because there is a monopoly on currency production. Like they would not, presumably, would not extend these loans if it w- if they were loaning them gold, for instance, or loaning them Bitcoin. Right? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not happening. As we said in the last episode, you almost don't want them to pay the money back because that's when you get to enforce the conditionality. Yeah. Well, and I, I was talking about this with someone earlier today. Like, there's no reason why in a in a like back in a gold standard or maybe in a future Bitcoin standard that nations couldn't like say hey we want a stabilization fund mm-hmm. let's pull some capital together for a rainy day yeah. and then if there's a famine or an earthquake or something like we can we can we we, we can stabilize countries to yeah. preserve global trade there's nothing wrong with that idea mm-hmm. uh with, with a with a sound money system it could totally happen it's just that like that's not what the imf is today like right. it's it's very much to exploit and to and to and to drain resources yeah. i mean what's interesting about the imf in particular is that it, you know at the beginning it was it was created to to enforce this um pegged exchange rate structure right so post bretton woods until 71 essentially like countries used a lot of exchange rate controls before from like 44 to 58 but from 58 to 71 like basically people use dollars redeemable for $35 per ounce and their currencies were essentially in a, tied to this rate. And the IMF's existence was supposed to be to like stabilize that rate. Mm-hmm. So they wanted the trade to keep going. But after Nixon took the country off the gold standard, most economists were like, okay, so the IMF can go away now, right? That was its purpose. So it shifted, it pivoted its mm-hmm. mission essentially from like propping up the exchange rate of like large major currencies to lending to predatory poor countries. Lending. Yeah, predatory lending. Yeah. Like it, it, it moved from exchange rate stabilization to predatory lending in yeah. 71. It's basically what happened. And it's done it ever since. And the World Bank had a similar pivot. I mean, it, at the beginning, it was very focused on Europe and Japan and rebuilding from war. And then it pivoted to social engineering, mm. you know, geoengineering, basically, of these, of these very resource-rich, poor countries. I mean, that's really what the world bank's done is is force them to be dependent on us for food imports and sculpt their economy so that they focus on exporting raw goods to us and like a handful of agricultural products that they can't consume yeah uh, at at the expense of sovereignty and industry at home i mean that's what they've done so the these institutions sort of pivoted at, right as we honestly, right as we went into the fiat standard, the, yeah. they're, the, 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 these are products of the fiat system. Exactly. Do you see what I'm saying? One hundred percent. Like they weren't great at the beginning. Like during that, you know, you could, you can. I think it's still fair to call Bretton Woods a sort of a. It, it was a gold exchange standard. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, it wasn't a pure gold standard. Yeah. But it was. Um, it was definitely a gold standard of sorts a united states controlled gold standard yeah but like it was it was there was a big pile of gold that that yeah. that, that dictated what the us could do yeah and um during that time the imf and world bank were 
not great. They did, and I detail, they weren't great at the beginning either, mm-hmm. but like they weren't, they didn't have this like colonial kind of dynamic. Right. That really started to emerge during the pure fiat age. And yeah. I'm, you know, there's, that might be interesting to reflect on. You well, know? this is another, yeah, this is kind of the point I was trying to get to too. This is another devastating symptom of fiat. <laughs> it's like once For sure. one superpower has a monopoly on currency production. It can become a dead empire. They're almost inevitably going to engage in these predatory lending practices. Yeah, because they can. I mean, because there's so much demand for dollars that we can just, yes. we can loan. Yeah. We can print them to, to make loans. Yeah. Like in the book, I, I quote Saifedean in, t- in terms of talking about how right now, if the U.S. government wants to loan Brazil $30 billion and our government is like cool with their government, it's paperwork. It's paperwork. Right. <laughs> it's literally paperwork. There's no skin in the game. Yeah. On a Bitcoin standard, I mean, it's not paperwork. It's right. like real, who's Bitcoin, right? Right. right. Um, now, it doesn't mean we can't lend Brazil money, but like we'd have to be damn sure that it's like a good investment right. and that we're going to get what we want. It's an arm's length transaction versus this weird, you're trying to like, you want them to be indebted to you on a fiat standard so you can enforce these conditions of control and whatnot. Yeah. And again, you could still loan bitcoin yeah to another country and have a debt agreement but like they can't like it's interesting like they're it's it's a it's a bearer asset like if you give them the bitcoin they have the bitcoin yes <laughs> like and it's the, not like yeah. fiat where you can like a country that's an adversary like we can freeze their dollars right right it's it's a little different right, right. so this is why i think that like this decade, you're just going to see a lot of people very interested in not just not just individuals and families yes. and companies, but nation states. They're going to be interested in saving in an asset, of course, not in a liability. Going yeah. back to our first conversation, so I, I think that's going to be geopolitically very interesting. But anyway, so you know, that's the book. I mean, it talks about how this IMF, World Bank-led international monetary system, when it comes to like the wealthy countries and their relationship to poor nations, how it's not just bureaucratic and wasteful and corrupt. Mm. That's the typical criticism of these Mm. things. No, no, it's much deeper than that. It's actually that they are neocolonial tools to, to harvest resources and labor from other places and, and, and and then bring them in to subsidize our economies. And, And we would be so much worse off if we didn't have this flow. Um, just to be brutally honest, mm-hmm. like like we we are we are subsidizing our societies at the expense of others, and it's it's like every time we try to like it's interesting like you you could almost say that when we start to encounter economic crises at home, like uh, eighteen months ago, two years ago when the Fed started to raise rates, um, I guess eighteen months ago. You know, they're doing that entirely for their domestic mandate. They want to reduce inflation and they want a good unemployment rate, things like that. Mm. So they decide to start cutting. And that's just devastating for the third world, like mm. for the developing world. Mm-hmm. That's just absolutely devastating. I mean, it's already caused governments to be overthrown, countries to go bankrupt. Like you raise the cost of capital. I mean, that's just right. devastating for these countries. So it crushes local fiat currencies, the cost of living skyrockets. So, you know, it's not just that we're taking resources and stuff from from the periphery of the world into the core. Like when we make decisions, it's it's a two way street. Like it it goes back. 
Mm-hmm. So like when we tighten at home, it tightens much tighter elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like the average American yeah. probably feels t- tight, you know what I mean, a little tighter now than they did two years ago. Like there's less, you know, it's not like you're doing um, Dave Portnoy like throwing darts at a wall and investing right, in right. whatever stock. Yeah. It's probably not happening today, right? There's some tightness. Yeah. Like there's there's some some fear. There's 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 clearly something going on with our banking system yeah. and there's there's issues and problems and Americans are cognizant of this. But I mean, in other countries it's much tighter. Yes. Like we're talking starvation and political overthrow right. and things like that. Listen, and we're very insulated from that. Yeah. And we always think, oh, that's something that can't ever happen to us. And again, the the core idea of fiat currency being depreciated over time, right? There's a direct incentive there to yeah. borrow, right? To borrow stronger dollars, pay back weaker dollars. So you get this giant overgrown debt structure worldwide. And then once the Fed or whatever central monetary authority starts to hike rates, it's you can crush that debt structure very quickly. So the pain is disproportionately felt at the bottom and the middle. As you said, the Americans at the top, well, you don't feel it as much. But yeah. it's, it's it's this idea of... Well, inflation is very structural. It, it, it actually, like, and this works both on a domestic scale and also internationally. Um, and there's really good work on this done by a bunch of political scientists. But, like, inflation is structural, meaning it actually uh, transfers wealth from workers to capitalists. And what I mean by that is, like, owners of firms. Mm-hmm. So it, it consolidates power uh, with the the wealthy, basically. Uh Inflation does. Yeah. So it's a tool actually for redistributing wealth from the poor to the rich. I would qualify that slightly to say it's not necessarily just private owners of firms. It's there's a particular cohort that benefits from it. Those nearest the. But meaning, like, if you look at like percentages of if you look at an economy and you look at like, well, what's the wealth share of the the working class versus like the elites or whatever? It marginalizes labor for sure. When you devalue the currency, you're transferring wealth from the. <laughs> from the working class to the to Port the wealthy, rich, yeah. um, and that's not great, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and that's interesting. It sounds like a leftist argument, and maybe it is, but it's it's an observation of data. Like this is what happens when there's well, yeah. hyperinflation. Yeah. Like as a country's hyperinflating, the, the the it's basically you're squeezing all of the laborers and yes. all the working class, and you know maybe it's not great either for the rich but they're they're proportionally benefiting let's for put it sure. that way and it's all, it's intuitive like look what happened in the united states during like when we had all the stimmies and stuff mm-hmm. it, it's about rate rate of change yes. right like yeah sure like people like enjoyed the stimmies but like jeff bezos really enjoyed it for sure his, <laughs> you know? his net worth doubled yeah, right exactly because right? 99.9% so. of his assets are right. not in cash yeah they're in Asset right. inflation. And the person at the things. opposite end of the spectrum has no stock paycheck or, to paycheck. Or bonds or they're whatever. all in dollars. Yeah, exactly. They're getting disproportionately screwed by that. Yeah, like their cost of living, they're feeling the squeeze yeah. and maybe they get some bailout money. Right. But I mean, this is just inevitable. Like as we start to deglobalize, yeah. right, we're going to lose, as I'm trying to explain, like through through the thesis of the book, like we're history rhymes, as we said. Yeah. And, and I think you're going to look at a decade where there's like things that are more scarce and you're just going to see more and more MMT type activity from yeah. governments. Like they're going to do more debt monetization. They're going to have to, and they're going to have to subsidize the bond market and the stock market yeah. like they do in Japan. And they're going to have to, um, they're going to have to subsidize like living. I mean, they're going to have to provide subsidies like they are today in Britain for energy. There's like a cap on energy. Like, I mean, there's going to be a lot more like need to like in their eyes to 
subsidize food, um, electricity prices, like, yeah. and that's just going to result in enormous amounts of money printing. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So, um, you know, you just want to get ahead of that and realize what's happening here. And, you know, Bitcoin is interesting because, like, you didn't have an escape from the system before, right? So if you were being, like, structurally adjusted in, like, Peru in the 1980s, you were stuck with your fiat currency. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you could find some gold, but, like, was that really going to, like... Like it's not tradable, yeah. you know, it's not like convertible. You can't really use it as money. So it's um, it's really interesting now that people like with 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 a phone can now access this 24 seven market for for, you know, debasement proof currency. Mm -hmm. That's that's unstoppable. It's really cool. So we don't know how it changes the like dollar hegemonic system. One might predict that it will have a seismic shift. Yeah. Um, but. We do know it gives individuals an escape. Right. And that's really, really cool. Yeah, that is extremely it's cool. It's inspiring. I mean, because we're not going to have... I, 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 I um, dedicated my book on the dedication page. Um, it says, to the victims of development, they may never get the justice they deserve, but they may get a way out. Hmm. That's what it says. Hmm. So none of these people are ever going to be held accountable for the tens of millions that were killed during structural adjustment. Right. Literally tens of millions of people. Um, when they're never going to be held accountable. Like Larry Summers, who was like chief economist at the world bank. Yeah. He's on Twitter telling us what to do. And he like yeah. went to the white house. Right. Like he's going to live in a mansion. Yeah. Like, he's never going to go to prison, you know? Um, so there will never be any accountability. Um, there won't be any justice, but there might be a way out. I think that's yeah. kind of finally like something to maybe hang your hat on, you know? Yeah, well, it definitely is something worth fighting for um, because this, you know, this whole, what we're describing here is the middle class being eviscerated through this, right? So the rich are getting much richer, the poor are getting much poorer. That's what collapses civilization when you... when you, I mean, I get any, and you look at any country that got structurally adjusted, yeah. financial repression, that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
the wealthy find ways. You know what I mean? They're connected. Like you can, like in some of these circumstances, like you, <laughs> like let's say you were really wealthy in Zaire in the eighties or nineties. Like you, you could like borrow a huge amount of money right. in Zaire's, and then immediately buy something hard with it, right. like a house yeah. or dollars, and then you could watch the value of your loan go to zero. Mm-hmm. These are the games that like yeah, the one percent can play, yeah. but the bottom fifty percent can't do that. Right. They're stuck, right? They could never do that. Mm-hmm. What most people save in on our planet today, according to data from, uh, I think Give Directly, I, I was talking with these guys. I mean, people sit like that. Like we we are like very very privileged. Like most people save in sheet metal or cattle, something like that. Wow, which you know are okay, you know. Like this is when you go to El Zante, you see people used to mm-hmm. save in cinder blocks. Yeah. They would essentially buy the cinder blocks and then they could at least have those. Yeah. And it would the value of a cinder block would be would would hold its value reasonably well, things mm-hmm. like that. But like in parts of Africa and Asia, people save in cattle, like heads of cattle or mm-hmm. currency essentially. Um and then and then sheet metal, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think about the upgrade that Bitcoin gives them. Yeah. Because it's right. a 24-7 tradable thing. That's yeah. Just, yeah. They're holding these things like because they can't be counterfeited or they're debasement proof, as you said. Yeah. And now with Bitcoin, we can have a money, a useful money that's debasement proof. Well, it's also just like it get it, So during hyperinflation, the wealthy can escape by borrowing or by whatever, leaving or network stating or doing whatever they want to do. Mm. But the poor were always stuck. So now anyone with access to the internet and right. again, even in Africa, you can use Bitcoin without the internet. You mm-hmm. just uh, use a feature phone. Mm-hmm. You can like text mm-hmm. a number and it spits you out a menu on your little candy bar phone. Mm-hmm. And you can access your Bitcoin that way. It's like these solutions are happening. Yeah. So people can access Bitcoin and it's a way out. It's kind of inspiring. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's two things you can do. Um, I mean, the book is grim. It is not. It's not a light beach read, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think it's very important to reflect on. And go, I mean, I, I I challenge you. I mean, read the book. And if you disagree with it, let's discuss. I mean, yeah. I'd be very happy to do that. I, I hope it inspires a lot of discussions, even if people don't agree with it. I would welcome poking holes in it. Uh, I mean, the data to me is pretty strong. But, mm-hmm. you know, all you got to do is look at a, de- a chart of external debt of third world countries since the 70s. It's yeah. exponentially up. Yeah. And like you explain that. You know what I mean? So maybe you have a different explanation of that than me. That's fine. Let's actually discuss that. Mm. We never discuss that. No one ever talks about that. No one ever talks about the the foreign impact of our monetary system. Mm-hmm. Never. Right. No one's interested in talking about what happens to poor countries when we raise rates. So anyway, um well because it benefits the West, right? It's Yeah, it's, but the repression is hidden. The monetary repression right. is hidden is I guess what I'm getting at. I mean, again, like we covered this last time, but you you replace the um the worship and the sword and the bayonet with uh with debt yeah. i mean that's really yeah. how you've this been able to the john start. adams quote right there's two ways yeah. to conquer a country one by sword the other so by debt. so what can you do you can educate yourself you know check out the book um it's on it's on amazon it's on bitcoin magazine uh store check it out um we'll be coming out right now it's in hardcover but we'll be coming out with a kindle and an audiobook soon share spread the word check it out like leave a review like let's get a discourse going mm. separately you can also um join the resistance it's pretty mm-hmm. cool so we are creating a resistance so 
next month you're going to join us. Uh, we'll be in Norway. Um, for 15 years, we've been building a community called the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is like basically uh, a group of modern-day superheroes. Uh, they're dissidents from all around the world who are pushing back against their governments. And the reason we created it, it's a Human Rights Foundation program, and the reason we created it is because most of the world conferences were basically places where the elite could get on stage and tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's like Davos or mm-hmm. TED or whatever. So what's cool about that as a freedom forum is it's like it's like brave dissidents from difficult political climates mm-hmm. getting up and, and talking to us about what they do and and telling us how we can get involved and what their struggle is. So um we are, have built out like a financial freedom track there. So there'll be a portion of the programming that's focused on global Bitcoin adoption. And we're going to have Bitcoiners from so many places there. And they're going to be talking to us about how to use Bitcoin in a dictatorship, how to fight off state attacks, how to use Bitcoin without the internet. We're going to have people from Ukraine, from the Horn of Africa, from West Africa, from Southeast Asia, from India, from Hong Kong. And they're all going to be talking about like Bitcoin adoption and Bitcoin use. So I think it's going to be really special. And, and, um, that is the resistance to what I've been describing, to what we're describing, to what I'm describing in the in the book in Hidden Repression. Bitcoin is the resistance, so we need to we need to help these educators. We need to help them grow their mission. Mm. So, what can you do? You can get the book, or or you can come to the Oslo Freedom Forum and meet the resistance and join. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm super <laughs> excited. It's been my first year at Oslo Freedom Forum, and um, after having spoken with you and spoken with the team, mm-hmm. like, I, I get chills almost every time I hear it because cool, the stories you hear from these people, even secondhand. Are yeah. Very, and I mean, compelling. for those of, you know, most of your listeners are, are Bitcoiners or Bitcoin interested. Um, you know, we will, the first two days will be focused on like political dissidents and we're going to be listening to them and we're going to be learning from them basically is the main thing. And, and there will be, Bitcoin workshops and stuff like mm-hmm. that, hands-on 101 for activists mm-hmm. the first few days. But it's mainly like us listening to them and learning about what they're doing. And then the third day, we'll have a financial freedom program track. So we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll then we'll get to share the knowledge that yeah. we have in our community and we'll get to trade notes. But I think I like it that way. And, yeah. and, and it's, um, the freedom, the financial freedom track will be, it, it'll be like, op, op, I, you know, Bitcoin's voluntary, right? Like mm-hmm. for most people, most people are still pre-coiners, no-coiners. Like, I don't want to force anything on them. But, like, political dissidents tend to be interested in the money that the government can't control. Right. <laughs> so we have it set up so that, like, the first two days we're in a theater and we're, like, listening to these amazing stories, performances, getting inspired, getting depressed, but getting energized by, like, how people fight back. It's very emotional. The experience is really cool. And then the third day we'll have, uh, we'll move to a festival environment by the fjord and we'll have, like, a couple different venues and one of them will be dedicated to financial freedom. So we'll have all kinds of content all day there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the activists and dissidents who do want to learn, they're going to be coming in and checking it out. It's perfect. And f- those who don't want to learn, they don't have to learn. They can go yeah. somewhere else. So it's sort of, I think that's the way to do it, is you have to like have it there. And uh, if you're interested, go. If not, that's fine. Right. Eventually, everybody will be interested, but I yeah. think it just takes time. <laughs> just a matter of time, that's for yeah. sure. Um, okay, we. You're also speaking at. You're giving a keynote at Bitcoin 2023. Yeah, this Friday. Yeah, titled "Bitcoin versus the IMF" yep. on a lot of these topics. Yeah, I'll be trying to condense the book's thesis into like a 20 minute talk. Yeah, and I'm a lot, I'm excited for it. It should be fun. 
beautiful. And Look then, forward to working through it with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be super cool. Um, so for those that are interested, come check him out in Miami. And then also you mentioned this, I just want to get this in before we're done here. CBDC tracker. You yeah. So the Human Rights Foundation has a, a CBDC tracker program. We have a fellowship where we've hired three fellows to create uh, a, a web, a free online web resource that will go live in Q4 of this year, probably in November. And it'll be like a website where you can go to and you can learn about the progress of CBDCs in every country in the world, more or less. And um, you can learn about the risks to civil liberties and to monetary freedom and, and how far along they are and what the governments are doing. Um, it'll be like a one-stop shop for like policymakers and the general public and the media to learn about the progress of CBDCs. Yeah. That's great. But that, yeah, it doesn't really exist. So, And that is probably the number one specter we're dealing with right now because there are cbdc resources that exist today yeah but they're like friendly to cbdc <laughs> yeah they're like excited about cbdcs yeah so ours will be like very biased yeah yeah, yeah. we'll be pro-freedom which well if you're pro-freedom you have to be anti if you're pro-freedom you have to, <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah. a no-brainer unless you if to support a cbdc is to support the china social credit score system i mean it's be, it's interesting. It's actually becoming a political issue in the United States, right? But I, it's not like I don't think Democrats are particularly excited about it either. Mm -hmm. It's just that Republicans are coming out and saying, "Ah, like you're not going to have a like we're in Florida, like the yeah. like DeSantis just like tried to say, oh yeah, the, you can't the have a state CBDC. legislation being passed. <laughs> now, I mean, we're not getting a CBDC unless the the unless the Congress approves it. Yeah, um, which I think is, you know, look today we say it's unlikely. But like, give us two, three years of mm -hmm. of monetary crisis. Like, sure. they're going to want a They'll more efficient way of doing solution. stimulus. Because yeah. if everybody's got a CBDC account, it's so much easier for the government to do monetary stimulus. Yeah. Like, the whole, like, technology of stimulus is mm -hmm. not straightforward. Like, right. they were giving checks to dead people. Like, yeah. you, wait, you had to wait in the mail if you didn't want to use their system. Like, it, it was, like, very slow. Mm -hmm. So they want, like, 21st century stimulus. Yeah. Like, they want an, an app on your phone where they could just put the credits in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and survey and control. Exactly, yeah. And and, and and mainly use carrots. I mean, it's a yeah. carrots and sticks, but yes. like they want to use a lot of carrots, dude. Mm -hmm. They're going to be... Yeah, if you want your UBI... A lot of carrots, dude. You got to get your CBDC. So look out for that too. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's related. But yeah, anyway, thank you, Robert, for having me. Yeah, man. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I've got a collection of personal resources at alexgladstein.com. You can look at, up the Human Rights Foundation at href.org. Uh, I really would encourage you to check out the Oslo Freedom Forum, oslofreedomforum.com. There's tickets available for the conference uh, in Norway there. Uh, there's also going to be a, live, a free live stream, which would be cool. Um, so check that out. And you can follow me on social media and on, on Twitter at Gladstein. Um, and yeah, thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, man. 